It is Tuesday, December 5th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, a new project in Springdale aims to make art more accessible by bringing it to the neighborhood. The way that art institutions historically work is not thinking through who your neighbor is, what are the labors they encounter, what is the art that they need in their life, as opposed to what your curational vision is. Plus, preparing for an increasing population living in Arkansas with Alzheimer's. We saw a lot of movement during the 2023 uh, legislative session, the governor's first session, um, where we uh, were able to enact uh, a record for us, six, six pieces of legislation. And a passion for blades. Most people have never picked up or have any experience using a very high-end chef knife or a tool like that. We also have a quiz about Central Arkansas and more. Before that, the latest news from NPR. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents the final weeks of Listening Forest. Guests are invited to explore an interactive world of light, sound, and wonder in this immersive nighttime experience. Exhibition closes December 31st. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, one of 40 schools featured in Colleges That Change Lives by author Lauren Pope. Hendricks is nationally recognized among private liberal arts colleges for academic quality, engaged learning, and value. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more. The Ozark Society is a regional conservation organization known for saving the Buffalo National River from being dammed. Members across the state who love rivers and wild lands hike, volunteer, and work toward a common goal of keeping the natural state natural. Information on memberships at ozarksociety.net. This is... Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. And I'm Matthew Moore. Later this hour, Knives as Art. Randy Wilburn's latest episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas explores the world of bladesmithing with Kenneth Webb. First today, a new homegrown artist residency program in Springdale is trying to make art more accessible by making art and artists a part of the neighborhood. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth brings us this report. I pull up to a two-story yellow Victorian house wedged between a strip mall and a quiet neighborhood just a few blocks south of Emma Street in downtown Springdale. Kara Martinez opens the front door. I'm going to put this chihuahua away. Come in. How's it going? This is Lulu. Martinez is the director of Live in America Springdale, a community art organization and festival The program started back in 2022 as an ambitious one-off festival. As a project that was at the momentary, it was funded by the Walton Family Foundation. And the idea was to think through how a festival could be recreated and restructured to serve communities that aren't typically welcomed into art festivals, into art institutions. And how do we think about that process as both giving communities the right to decide for themselves, how they curate or program themselves and what they think of as art in their community, um, how they budget, who gets paid what, when do they get paid, is it a check, is it electronic payment, like thinking through all the barriers to payment that actually exists for communities, and then how they want to live in that space. So what happened is we grew a festival with nine communities. It was Las Vegas, um, the Diné, Apache, and Pueblo peoples around Albuquerque, New Mexico, El Paso Juarez, Austin, Texas, which is where I'm from, um, Northwest Arkansas, 
I have a map in my head that I'm going through. Uh, York, Alabama, which is this tiny, tiny rural town of about 5,000 people in sort of northwest Alabama, San Juan, and then Detroit. And the deal was they could program whatever they wanted. I just had to figure out how to make sure that the system of institution around it was healthy for those communities and that we could build a framework that would support their performances. So we gathered about 300 artists from across the US, Canada, Mexico, territories. And for two weeks, they performed and shared stories. And there was food and dancing and celebration. And inside that process, folks from Springdale, um, the Tyson Family Foundation, came to me and asked, well, what would you want to do next? And I'd been visiting Northwest Arkansas for about four years at that point. And I'm from East Texas. I'm from like super, like profoundly rural, 32 kids in your class, East Texas. So Springdale in this area made some kind of like homegrown sense to me. And I quite liked it. And I loved all the friends I was making here. And my hometown of, of I, I moved to Austin as a young person. But my hometown of Austin, Texas is, has changed drastically. And it's not, it's no longer a place where I feel at home. And Springdale felt like home. And so I, a group of us were thinking about what we would want to do next and what it means to be in community if you're from the outside. And that means you have to be present. It means that you have to show up and live in a place and be in conversation. So what we asked for from the Tyson Family Foundation is a house. And that house is now the base for the Live in America Springdale Artist Residency. And so can you tell us like where we are right now? Yeah, we're in Springdale at the corner of Holcomb and Maple. Um, It's a corner where there are a lot of Latine businesses in the post office, and we're in a big yellow... And over the past year, Martinez says that house has hosted art exhibitions on the lawn, held a New Orleans-style bounce music concert and writing workshop, and has even been covered shingle to baseboard in fabric by artist Danielle Hatch. Like, all down the front of the house. She's basically dressing the entire front of the house in ruffles. And that event will be, there'll be cake stands and punch and dancing and you can put on costumes and there's cookie decorating. It's like a celebration of of what people think of as like feminine labor and feminine ways of existing in the world. And, and she's delving into all of that. And while that initial Live in America festival was meant to show off local communities, The latest iteration of the project is to embed art and artists within the community of Springdale and lower the barrier to entry that Martinez says a lot of traditional museums or art spaces in the area still have. So we sit on the edge of what of a very working class community about an eighth a mile down. Holcomb is a chicken processing plant and the way that art institutions historically work is not thinking through who your neighbor is, what are, the, what are the labors they encounter, what is the art that they need in their life, as opposed to what your curational vision is. Um, so reversing that process of how you frame a thought first with like, who is here, what do they need versus here's my curational vision. And I think this place, this house, could be this great experiment in an area that's rapidly gentrifying. Like how do you create an art space that welcomes 
empowers, invigorates a community that historically hasn't had a lot of access to, to art. Um, who's, I mean, like we have conversations with our neighbors, like they're like, well, no, we're scared to go to Crystal Bridges. And sometimes we all go together. Um, but if they're not going to enter those spaces, how do I create access via this house to art making? And it's a, it's a practice that I believe changes people's lives, but it can't change your life if you don't have access to it. So it becomes an experiment in, in creating access for a community that typically doesn't feel welcome in art spaces. And one of the first programs that Live in America hosted earlier this year was just that, a community art show on the lawn of the house called Yard Art, with pieces from Springdale artist Audrey Vega. Audrey Vega's uh, family is an important, um, they, they would say a Hispanic family in Springdale and its history in the development of, of a Hispanic community and creating frameworks and structures that other Latinx community members could use to learn to survive in the United States. And so her art was about that story and about those family members. And what happened, <laughs> it's in the yard, there are tables out, people are doing things and strangers would just walk up, which is not a thing that happens in art spaces, in formal art spaces. But lots of strangers would walk up and be like, can we come? And I'm like, sure, have something to eat. Or they would say, when does this start? We're going to come back. So, so it be, creates, there's, the yard itself is a permeable space. In, you call it a third space in some ways in, in terms of theory. Um, it's not, it is public. Um, it is accessible to the public. It's not a formal institutional space. And so people know what to do with yards and you just put a new object in the yard, like you know how to be in a yard, we're gonna put games, we're gonna put drinks and snacks and some art, and then you just hang out like you already know how to hang out in the space of a home. Martinez says this residency program attracts artists from the community or those who understand, are inspired by, and can adapt to the rhythms of Springdale. I try to select artists that are gonna be, like that are gonna love Springdale. They walk around a lot, they take line dancing classes at the Jones Center. Like it is, I'm like, okay, I guess we're going line dancing. Um, they they find nooks and crannies of this town that I don't know about. Um, they wander a lot. So far, folks have been writing a lot when they're here. The house is kind of set up for writing in some ways. Um, there aren't like big studio spaces in it yet. And while she says she isn't sure what the future of the house or the residency will look like long term, whatever it is, she believes keeping the same free-range community feel is vital. This house very much functions like a house right now. But when like Danielle was here, we were sitting at the dining table having a meeting, and she talked about her comfortability and her ability to be honest in a space that is a house as opposed to a space that is an institution. And the ability to like feel like she could mess up or ask questions or question things in a house. Doing, I guess like live in America also, we we laugh at also what is it like live in America. So thinking through with this house, like what does it mean to like live in an art space? Who gets to enter it? Who gets to use it as a resource? How do we not like bankrupt people in the process of using a space or a resource? How do we create spaces that are permeable and that are also welcoming? So that like literally 
it is when art goes up in the yard strangers knock on the front door and ask what is this and so how do we like keep that going that's a thing that i'm super interested in and so continuing to transform this space so it, it is even more clearly a space that is that the public can enter and interact with is is kind of what i'm sitting with and thinking about that balance between like what is live and what is live for ozarks at large i'm daniel caruth Speaking of art in Springdale, a new outdoor mural in downtown Springdale provides a glimpse into ancient Marshallese culture. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich spoke with the artist to bring us the story. Marshallese artist Elmar Anatok was commissioned by University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences to paint a mural to celebrate more than 12,000 Marshallese who've settled in northwest Arkansas. The vivid 300-square-foot mural can be seen in downtown Springdale, across from Shiloh Square, airbrushed and painted on the side of Buck's Emma Avenue Bar and Tap. The mural is titled Windcatcher. It's pretty much about us Marcellese, uh being navigators and how we um, always lending in and help one another. The mural depicts how prior to colonization, indigenous islanders were adept at navigating their 750,000-square-mile ocean archipelago, traditionally referred to as Raleigh-Raddock, in sailing canoes using the sun constellation and stick charts. Yeah, it's pretty much symbolic. It also covered the nuclear legacy, you know. Like, I put some Japanese wave over there to symbolize, you know, we were under the Japanese and then the American took over and, and, you know, we became ally with the Americans. Relations which continue under a recently renewed compact of free association with the U.S., enabling Marshallese to freely migrate here. In an email, Project Coordinator Stephanie Takamaru with Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese says islanders are proud to have a mural marking their growing presence in the region and that the painting provides a glimpse into ancient folklore passed down by oral storytellers for thousands of years. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Ahead this hour, setting a strategy for helping Arkansans living with Alzheimer's and dementia, and helping their caregivers. But the need becomes even more dire and exacerbated when you think about um, just the silver tsunami, because the baby boomers are reaching retirement age, so the demand on the senior space is going to be exasperated over the next few years. That's later on today's show. First on today's show, we are here in this year-end giving season. Uh, Kyle, we are on the air live all this week here at KUAF Public Radio, uh, asking our listeners to think a little bit about the the investment that they have gotten from KUAF, from the information, from the news, from the culture, from the entertainment that they're getting uh, day in and day out throughout the year. And put a monetary price mm-hmm. on that. Think about how much value, how much reward you have gained from listening to KUAF and put a monetary value on that and consider giving a gift towards that amount uh, this this week. When you think about just what information you gleaned in the last few weeks and months, whether it was about Gaza or the war between Ukraine and Russia or historic efforts to try to find a new Speaker of the House. A former president is on trial. I mean, there's been That's a, just the last few weeks. Exactly. <laughs> and you know that this is a, a place where you can go and find out the information. 
maybe it's in the newscast at the top of the hour and you find out a little bit. Maybe it's inside here and now or all things considered a morning edition. You could find out more context. Maybe it's at KUAF.com when you have a chance to read the stories or listen to them that way. Just think about the value that KUAF and public radio provides for you day in, day out. Yeah. And as a listener to KUAF, you understand the value of independent news and information to make your decisions about your day and help you understand the world and what's happening in it. Knowledge is valuable and worth paying for. Our contributing listeners make it possible for KUAF to bring you all the programs that keep you so well informed, whether it's here at Ozarks at Large or other programs throughout the day. On All Things Considered, you start your morning with Morning Edition. However you get that information, we know it's important to you. And listener support is the largest share of our funding. So I hope you'll take just a moment right now and head to supportkuaf.com. You can become a one-time giver. You can set up an opportunity to become a sustaining member where you give just a little bit each month over the course of the year. That that makes up a pretty substantial amount of money that helps us here at KUAF continue to bring you independent news and reliable information day in and day out. You can make that gift at supportkuaf.com. And thank you. This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us. The Alzheimer's Association estimates about 60,000 Arkansans are living with Alzheimer's or dementia. And there are about 180,000 unpaid caregivers for people living with Alzheimer's. In 2022, the Alzheimer's and Dementia State Plan was created to help Arkansas navigate an increase in residents with dementia. Today, the Alzheimer's and Dementia Advisory Council is meeting with House and Senate Public Health Committees in Little Rock to share further recommendations. Yesterday, David Cook, the Alzheimer's Association Arkansas Chapter Director of Public Policy, talked with me about the state's approach to helping people with Alzheimer's and helping their caregivers. He says several of the strategies included in the original Alzheimer's plan have been implemented. We saw a lot of movement during the 2023 uh, legislative session, the governor's first session, um, where we uh, were able to enact uh, a record for us, six six pieces of legislation um, that were consistent with the recommendations that were outlined uh, within the state plan. What are some examples of some of that legislation that got passed during the last session? Sure. So uh, one of the things that uh, we were able to do was strengthen the advisory council by adding some representation from the assisted living space and also some home and community based providers uh, that was missing around the council. Um, One of the things that we looked at specifically was uh, enhancing um, the dementia training standards across care settings um, here in Arkansas. And so we had uh, three pieces of legislation that we advanced last session that strengthened dementia training standards for uh, home care providers, um, assisted living facilities. We now have uh, dementia training standards in place um, for assisted living communities. Uh, Arkansas, back on the home care base side, Arkansas became one of the first states to have mandated training for home caregivers. So that was exciting to lead on that. Um, Arkansas also joined only 11 other states to um, uh, uh, to ensure that our, our members of law enforcement had um, some dementia training as well. And so we've got that in statute now. Um, Arkansas, again, only one of 12 states. Uh, another movement that we saw was continued support of the Alzheimer's and Dementia Respite Grant Program. Um, DHS included $200,000 of funding to ensure that uh, dementia caregivers had access to uh, respite funds uh, to give them a break, um, you know, and an arrest. Um, 
because again, caring for someone with dementia is extremely burdensome and um, challenging at times. And so uh, it was important that we made steps to ensure that our caregivers were supported as well. When when you give this updated plan and, and further suggestions for strategy for the state to the House and Senate Public Health Committees, one of the things you're going to be talking about is funding for early detection and diagnosis education. That would seem to make sense to me that trying to get as ahead of Alzheimer's as possible. Sure, risk reduction is extremely important and early detection and diagnosis has always been a priority of the Alzheimer's Association, but now even more so because we have treatments available for the first time. Um, but those treatments are only viable for people with the early, in the early stages of Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment. So it's, it's important and imperative that we um, we, again, create a health system where we incentivize early detection diagnosis. Um, and so education and, and around uh, public health education, public health funding uh, to educate uh, the community, but also clinicians on the importance of early detection diagnosis, uh, when to make that referral onto a specialist uh, so that they can have access to, to treatments. Uh, we have one treatment that's performed really well that's out on the market now. Uh, and we expect um, in January to receive a second treatment to be on the line. Uh, we think that will receive FDA approval sometime in January. Uh, so that's exciting for our folks. And as a patient advocacy organization, we want to make sure that people, again, are taking steps to minimize their risk to developing dementia, but also that everyone has access to these treatments. Uh, so early detection and diagnosis is extremely important a piece of that. You mentioned, I think, $200,000 for the respite program from DHS. Is that enough? That is not enough. And that's a great question, Kyle. I think what we're seeing over the last two years is that um, this, again, this program is only in its second year. Uh, in year one, that 200000 lasted us to uh, about March of 2023. Um, in year two, uh, that funding was released in, in July of this year. And um, our latest figures show that uh, there is only $67,000 um, left of the $200,000. Uh, so, you know, relatively, uh, you know, over 50% of the funds have already been uh, given out. Uh, we anticipate that um, that grant to probably run out around sometime in February. Uh, so the need is great. Uh, we're, we're learning that there is um, great need not only in the metros, but especially in the rural uh, areas. Um, over 38% of the funds that have been released this year have actually gone to rural communities. Um, and so the need is great. And we'll be asking the legislature to match that um, and get that number up to 400,000. We think the real number probably to fit the need is around half a million, but we're trying to double it and increment that up uh, as we've shown need and um, certainly success of the program. But that just speaks again to the, to the dire need for people uh, across the state. Arkansas, a poor state, many parts of it rural with limited access to health care. Does that make considering the future of Alzheimer's role in Arkansas a challenge? It does. Um, you know, the, the limited access to care is certainly a challenge uh, in the rural areas, as you mentioned. But one of the other things that is concerning to us is that uh, the challenges that are being experienced uh, with, with staffing um, in the healthcare system uh, across care settings. So home care providers are looking for more staff, um, our assisted living, so our long-term care facilities, even our hospitals are, are struggling to fill roles. Um, and so uh, you, you can't, you know, legislate more bodies. And so uh, drawing more people, incentivizing people to 
to choose um, pathways into the healthcare space is extremely important over the next few years. Um, as we have forecasted the last few years, there's always been a, a healthcare shortage, but the need becomes even more dire and exacerbated when you think about um, just the silver tsunami because the baby boomers are reaching retirement age. So the demand on the senior space is gonna be um, exasperated over the next few years. So <clears throat> making sure that we have access to care, access to treatment, um, access to diagnostics is essential um, and access to support services. So that's gonna be a continued challenge that the state faces, uh, which is not unique to Arkansas because every state's navigating this in some respect, uh, but it seems even more um, felt here because of just the low demand, um, I mean, the high demand in rural areas and just the low, the levels of access there that we see, we're seeing. Six pieces of legislation passed in the previous session, meeting with legislators this week. Are you optimistic for the relationship between the Alzheimer's Association in Arkansas and lawmakers? I'm very optimistic. Um, over the last few years, we've seen an increase of um, response from the Arkansas uh, legislature. Uh, we, we certainly felt the governor's support um, during this past session, um, again, signing landmark legislation for us. Uh, so we we do know that lawmakers are responding to it. They see the need um, and they, uh, in, in many cases, they feel the need personally because they've been personally touched by Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, but that awareness has been great over the last few years. Uh, their response uh, continues to be um, encouraging. Uh, there's been more engagement in our advisory council over this past year from, from different lawmakers that really haven't been around the table before. So there's a lot of attention being played uh, to our disease. Uh, particularly now, I think one of the things that's driving that is the availability of, of, of treatments. And so one of the things that we have worked very diligently on is ensuring that there's equitable access to treatments. Um, so, you know, across payer levels, we're watching to see how private insurers are picking up coverage. Uh, we certainly want to make sure that our state health employees have access to uh, to Alzheimer's treatments. Um, uh, that's certainly one thing that we're working on as a priority going forward. Um, but, you know, the, the list of our ask uh, for 2024, if I could touch on that, uh, just more funding for public health. We haven't seen a state investment um, specific to Alzheimer's dementia on the public health side that uh, uh, so we need public health to engage, uh, but more funding for the Dementia Caregiver Respite Grant Program, and then ensuring Medicaid uh, uh, coverage for um, you know, cognitive screening and care planning services as well. So those are three of the main uh, priorities that we're focusing on going into a fiscal session where you know we're kind of limited on what we can we can work on. So they have to have a budget ask attached to them. David Cook is the Alzheimer's Association, Arkansas Chapter Director of Public Policy. He talked with me yesterday via Zoom. The Alzheimer's and Dementia Advisory Council is meeting with House and Senate Public Health Committees in Little Rock today. You can learn much more and find information for caregivers at alz.org Arkansas. And there is a 24-hour helpline for Alzheimer's caregivers. That's 800 272 3900. 800-272-3900. We'll announce that phone number again at the end of our show today.
This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. And this is the week that we set aside at the end of every year, or near the end of every year. It is the KUAF end-of-year fundraiser, when we want to make sure that we end, in this case, 2023, very, very strong. It's time for you to make a tax-deductible contribution. If it's time, you can do so right now at supportkuaf.com. One of the things uh, that I love about this time of year, Kyle, is you and I kind of take some time every once in a while to look back at all of the things that we've covered here on Ozarks at Large um, as we're looking towards this holiday season and we're putting together some special shows. I'm constantly reminded as I'm digging through this stuff, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. we did a story on this. Oh, yeah, we did a story. Do you yeah. remember talking to this author? And sometimes I don't <laughs> until someone brings it back up. It's like, oh, yeah. And it's it's just really uh, kind of mind-blowing that we cover <laughs> so much day in and day out here on Ozarks at Large. And it's a reminder to me that, like, the sort of stuff that we do here matters and these conversations are so important. And we have so many of them. And uh, if you are looking for a reason to to make a donation, to make a gift during this time, just consider how many I, – I would invite you to go to KUAF.com, go mm-hmm. to Ozarks at Large, and just go to like author interviews and just dig through all of those and just think that like we have been able to bring you these really in-depth, long – interview conversations with some really well-known authors. R.L. Stein yeah. is one that comes to top of mind. I don't think that's one you forgot about. No, I did not forget about R.L. Stein, no. But there was one interview you and I were talking about, uh, Midwatch in Verse. Oh, I can't wait for this to air again. Two professors at John Brown University, and they wrote this book about this this um, tradition of naval, uh, you know, on naval ships, whoever had the watch that would cross from one year to the next, they would write a poem in the logbook. Mm-hmm. And they've put them together. They were so wonderful to talk with. And it's such an interesting topic. I cannot wait to share that again. And we will in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and that was a conversation we had back in April. Wow. And, it's, and it's just wild to think how much we have done since then. That's one of the things that's really fantastic about Ozarks at Large is we do a lot. We cover a lot. And we're able to do that. We're able to have this platform to talk to, whether it's professors at John Brown University or it's R.L. Stein and everything in between there. We have this opportunity to bring you these wonderful in-depth conversations because of listener support, because of people just like you who rely on these conversations, rely on the news we bring you day in and day out here on Ozarks at Large. So if that's something you want to make sure we don't lose out on, we we can continue to do in the coming year of 2024, make a gift right now. You can do that at supportkuaf.com. Kenneth Webb shares a story that is familiar to a lot of Ozark creators and artists. He discovered a passion when he was young. He continued that passion as a hobby, now has turned that passion into his work. Kenneth Webb is a bladesmith, and he's the owner of Webb Blades, based in Fayetteville. This week, he's the guest on Randy Wilburn's podcast, I Am Northwest Arkansas. Kenneth says even though he made his first knife-shaped object when he was 13, it wasn't until he finished his military service that he started thinking more seriously about making knives. As we hear in this edited excerpt from the podcast, it was a passion that just wouldn't leave him. But this knife making is something that kept resurfacing and kept being something that I was compelled to do, even through being in a professional environment, sales, largely the automotive industry. 
It's something that I kept as a hobby, you know, and, and then you have a have a room for it and then you have a garage for it. And then that garage is not big enough. Now you've got, you know, you have a, a certain setup that just kind of keeps swallowing the entire every waking second. So at one point, you know, my special order just increases to the point to where it requires more and more time. In fall of 2021, uh, I had the opportunity to go sign on as the bladesmith for Silver Dollar City there okay. in Branson. And I, uh, I spent right at a year there, learned a lot of stuff. That was my first foray into, into doing this as a full-time occupation really concentrating on that art. And it became very apparent that at a certain point, we need to put our money where our mouth is, or we're just wasting time. So I made the call to take this hobby into a, a full swing endeavor with this art. So I'm an artist. I'm a bladesmith. I make very high-end pieces, but that's really less important as to the why. Why is art important? It's important to me to be more connected, not only with myself, but with other people. There's something with a talisman and a, a high-level object that informs the way that you experience the world. Wait, so just so for the uninitiated, because I know some people will hear that word talisman and not know what to appoint it to. So mm -hmm. just let's framework that to just define a talisman. Yeah, absolutely. So a talisman is something is something that that informs a higher level of existence. If you just take a twenty dollar chef knife from Walmart or wherever your package store is, you know the favorite getting place that you go to, that'll cut your sandwich. Cut your sandwich just fine. Most people have never picked up or have any experience using a very high end chef knife or a tool like that. And there's something that happens when you when you pick up something. And you, oh, this is something different. Yeah. This is something that all of a sudden now you're stepping into a higher, higher frame of mind and now your cuts become much sharper. Now you're looking for better recipes to provide with the, the family that is at your table to cook with your friends for a dinner party. And now there's few things important, more important than the food that we put in our bodies. Yeah. And if that helps someone have a higher level of connectivity with their family and with the people that they choose to break bread with, mm -hmm. that is in service to connection. And that's why I do this. Yeah. There's many bodies in the street. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> blood on the road and there's a lot of sacrifices made to, to chase this to this level. And I'm into leaning into that more and deeper. And so knife making is an art form. And so I'm just, I'm curious to know from you, what has, what has really informed your artistic expression when it comes to bladesmithing and the utilitarian aspects of what a knife represents for a lot of people, whether mm -hmm. I'm out in the wilderness, just chopping up stuff, or whether I'm physically in my house about to make some amazing chef salad. Absolutely. The art itself is, it's a modality of self-improvement. Yeah. That's where I discover what I'm nervous about, what I'm fearful about, what I'm doubting in myself that I can accomplish. And it's, it's something that allows me to push my own envelope further through self-improvement. And they haven't all been winners. You've been doing this podcast business for a long time. I've made countless knives. They were not all winners. <laughs> I've made a heap and a mountain full of junk yeah. to get to where I'm at now. Yeah. And I think that's the way it is with any high level art. There's a road to accomplishment that is, that is super important. 
And that's to be leaned into more and greater. It's something I'm compelled to do. Yeah. I've done it in the rain. I've done it outside. That's just how it is. You know, and as, as we, and we, again, we talked about this too, was just the fact that, you know, when you forge steel and you create something like this, sometimes it has the ability to outlast you, right? As, as, as an owner. And I was kind of relaying to you the fact that there are samurai swords out there that were made, you know, in the, it, a long time ago, a thousand years ago, and that still exist to, today. And so I think it's interesting. And this is, you know, it's such a high level of art form when it comes to creating a blade, because you, you're not necessarily creating it just for one use, but it has the ability to last a lifetime and then some. And that is a talisman. That's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. So it's a very connected thing. Knives are one of our first tools right there with fire and containers and, you know, the ability to tie something together. And there's something that's, that's very, very close to the bone when it comes to using a tool like that. So what do you find is like the the most utilitarian request that you get for, for a knife? Like, I mean, do people commission you? Obviously, I'm sure that some people in the local culinary scene might be aware of you and, and your experience and what you've created, but do people like commission you for knives or how does that work? They do. And I'm actually moving more into having product available on my website that's not spoken for. Because for a long time, I was a year and and even sometimes more than two years booked out on special order commission, which I, I still do some custom work. There's a type of a, a limitation to, to a custom commission. Let's say I took this commission two years ago. And we agree on a thing for a set price. That thing be tied to my vision of what that knife needs to be. Well, meantime, in the two years prior to that, my skills and my abilities have increased exponentially. And so now I've got the quandary of, do I limit myself and the piece that I'm working on to my enlightenment and my understanding that I had two years ago? Mm-hmm. Or do I maintain integrity and still put out that same level of product that now no longer reflects the price that we negotiated? Yeah. So a custom commission is, is still something that is, is super valuable, valuable and viable, but I'm discovering more and more that the being on right on the cusp of the inspiration and the skill allows me to create exactly to the level and the limit of my ability as I understand it at the time. Mm-hmm. And next month, next year, I'm going to create something bigger and better and and that'll keep people available to uh, to have uh, the very best of what's offered yeah. at any given time. Yeah, no, that, that makes that makes perfect sense. So do you now where is your studio? I'm uh, here in Fayetteville, right off of Weddington Road. Okay. Just all back right. off the creek a little ways. All right. Do you have, is there an apprentice? It is all me. It's all you. Now, okay. I do have uh, designs for scaling up a bit and getting an employee or two to handle excess excess needs and product flow. But at this point, it's just me. I work in a very small shop yeah. and with plans of going into some construction here this fall to create the way for bigger and better things. What about teaching bladesmithing? Have you I done do. That? I offer classes. Okay. You know, both for general blacksmithing as well as specifically to bladesmithing. There's a, you know, I do demonstrations as well for certain events. But yeah, if somebody is interested in pursuing the craft of that, or maybe they have never hit a hot piece of metal with a hammer, just to, to get out and have a, an experience of, of what that seems like mm-hmm. uh, is, is absolutely in the cards. Yeah. We could put that together. 
Kenneth Webb is the owner of Webb Blades in Fayetteville. You can hear his whole discussion about knives with Randy Wilburn on the latest episode of Randy's podcast, I Am Northwest Arkansas. You can find the episode and past episodes wherever you find podcasts, but also at IamNorthwestArkansas.com or at KUAF.com. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A Searcy County artist who created primitive paintings would be known as the Grandma Moses of the Ozarks. Essie Ann Treat was born in 1902 in Nubbin Hill, and while young began making drawings, toys, and sculptures. Marrying Jessie Ward when she was 20, she settled into life as a farmer until cancer led her to begin painting for a living. Though never formally trained, she created hundreds of rustic scenes of Ozark life, many including a pioneer couple named Miranda and Hezekiah, and a supporting cast of animals, outbuildings, farm equipment, flower beds, and a pair of distinctive white rabbit ears. Her paintings were both humorous and poignant. She painted an average of one painting a day every day except Sunday, squirting oil paint straight from the tube onto a masonite board held in her lap. She took part in the Smithsonian Festival of American Folklife in 1970, and the Shiloh Museum in Springdale holds the largest collection of her art. Essie Ward died on July 23, 1981. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is Ozarks at Large. It's quiz time. <sighs> All right. <laughs> All right. I guess I forgot to study. <laughs> well, okay. So first, let me explain that this month's quiz is about Central Arkansas. It's been a little over two months since... Uh, we started having Central Arkansas listeners on Little Rock Public Radio KUAR. Thought yeah. it was time to devote a quiz to the region. Yeah. And with me to play, Jack Travis, who grew up. In Little Rock, Arkansas. And Daniel Carruth, who grew up. The thriving metropolis of Moralton, Arkansas. <laughs> Both considered, you know, parts of Central Arkansas, right? Yeah. All right, the idea behind these quizzes is not to show anyone is not knowledgeable. These are <laughs> questions that there's really no reason you should know the answer to, really. Okay? So there's no shame here. It's just to learn. We'll all learn more about Central Arkansas. Okay. I love a good learning experience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Moralton mascot, the Devil Dogs, right? Yeah, the Devil Dogs, yeah. yes. Which high school did you go to, Jack? I went to a Catholic high school. Don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me. Mascot is not the Rockets. Popes. It's the Rockets. It's the Rockets. Sis How boom. about that? Mm. Okay, very good. Well, we're going to start in Little Rock with football. On December 22nd, 1956, Little Rock hosted a bowl game, a football bowl game. Uh, there were big hopes, but it was a horrible day with the weather. Uh, it was rainy. It was muddy. The game was between Montana State and St. Joseph's College of Indiana. What was this one-and-done bowl game called? Was it the Aluminum Bowl, the Bauxite Bowl, the Copper Bowl, or simply the War Memorial Bowl? Well, I do know— and you're working together here. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, it's, you're not, it's not a competition. <sighs> you're wow. a team. No, I was—this uh, is cutthroat, and I was ready to win. <laughs> well, then, how about—well, so the state mineral is Bauxite. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking Bauxite because of mm -hmm. that. And War Memorial, it seems too on the nose. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I also don't know when that was named. Also, which war? What year was this? <laughs> I assume probably a this, world this, one. This game was in 1956. Great year. And the stadium was called War Memorial Stadium at that point. Okay. And that's where the think, game was. Yeah, I think I'm good. I think Bauxite. Yeah, I feel what good is about Bauxite it? Bowl? It was the Aluminum Bowl. Mm. Had it been the Bauxite Bowl, maybe there would have been a second one, right? Yeah, there would have been. Was War Memorial, is, is War Memorial made out of aluminum? Is there? What's... No, it was a sponsorship <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, They're aluminum bleachers, aluminum. though, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Hendricks College was first called 
Central Collegiate Institute. Where did it move from? What town in Arkansas was Hendricks College when it was Central Collegiate Institute? Where was it? Was it Altus, Bryant, Hope, or Napoleon? Hmm. It moved to Conway in 1890. <laughs> Another great, a great year. Yeah. yeah. Shout yes. out to 1890. <laughs> um. Where was Hendricks College first? What would become Hendricks College? Where was it first located? Altus, Bryant, Hope, or Napoleon? Well, I mean, if it's it's still in central Arkansas, so, you know, it bodes well for Bryant. Um, hmm. Home of the Hornets, by the way. Mm. Yeah, it's a, fa- it's a long way to move a college. Move <laughs> yeah. um, counties you. from Thanks. Celine. Altus, I want to say Napoleon just because, like, I've never heard of that. <laughs> Napoleon is now underwater, by the way, um, which is not – don't Both. consider that a hint. It was the first iteration of Hendricks College in Altus, Arkansas, Bryant, Arkansas, Hope, Arkansas, or the now-flooded Napoleon, Arkansas. Again, that's not a hint. Uh-huh. That should not be heard as okay. a hint. But is it not a hint because it's a hint? or like You know what? Take out Napoleon. It wasn't okay. Napoleon. So we're down to three. Altus, Bryant, or Hope? <laughs> I think I'm going Bryant. I wanna, I'm going to go with Altus. <laughs> so you're a team, or are you splitting? <laughs> oh, here? no. Okay, we're going to go with Bryant. We can go Altus. No, no, I think you're probably right. What do you want to do, Jack? Bryant. Altus. It was, oh. Hendricks was first in Altus, Arkansas. Argenta, which is now North Little Rock, took its name when it was Argenta from the Latin Argentum. What does Argentum mean? Does it mean bronze, silver, gold, or copper? You went to Catholic school, so... You should know you Latin. Should have Latin. <laughs> Let's Argentum. See. Hmm. Argentum. I the fun fact, I lived in the Argenta like district when yeah. I went to grad school. It's a I like that place. It was nice. I lived yeah. next to the trolley. It annoyed me very much. The trolley doesn't go twenty four seven though, right? It's only like No, during... it's just like if you got stuck behind it. Oh, I see. You were behind mm, because it also was yeah. yeah. It might run twenty four seven, you just wouldn't know. Because <laughs> it's so right. slow. Right. right. <laughs> hmm. Everyone in the room is looking at me now. Right, so uh, the options were copper. I think bronze, uh, bronze, silver, gold, or copper. Not aluminum. Not aluminum. <laughs> it wasn't the Argentum Bowl. Bowl. <laughs> no, it wasn't the Argentum Bowl <laughs> in 1956. Uh, well, I led us astray last time. So, Daniel, how about you? What are you, th- what are you thinking? I feel like there should be some sort of like it's like I'm trying to remember like the periodic table yeah. to figure this out. Oh, good But thought. I don't know that it's oh. going to help me. Uh, I want to say copper, but I don't yeah, know Yeah, I, I think I'm feeling copper as well. Silver. It's okay. I'm going to give you credit for Altus, so. Oh, okay. You've got one right, two wrong. Okay. All right. Fair. White Lightning, the 1973 film starring Burt Reynolds, yeah. was filmed almost entirely in Saline County in 1973. It was directed by Joseph Sargent, but what Academy Award-winning director actually did the scouting locations because he thought he was going to direct it, then dropped out. Spent two months on the project. Was it Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, or Jonathan Demme? It was Scorsese, yeah. I think that's right. Or are you thinking Scorsese because he directed Boxcar Bertha, also oh, filmed God. in central Arkansas? Yeah, that's why that's, I'm thinking that. Yeah, so it wasn't so Martin that's Scorsese. Not it. No. Hmm. When, uh, did, when did this movie come out? 1973. And what are the options again? Spielberg, Spielberg, Demi, Demi, or George Lucas. 
did the scouting, picked the location, spent two months in Arkansas. We were dead then dropped then, out. You know, you, you well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. I want to say Demi because I don't. I can't imagine. Or are you thinking Jonathan Demi because he directed? <laughs> so George Lucas. <laughs> Jonathan Demme directed um, Fighting Mad, which was filmed in Northwest Arkansas. That was his first film. Oh, I think that is why I'm thinking Demme. Yeah. <laughs> so it's either George Lucas or Steven Spielberg. We're gonna mm. go. We're gonna lock in George Lucas. Yeah. But I said Academy Award winning. Has oh. George Lucas won an Academy Award? I'm right. Going Spielberg to kill. <laughs> it was. You're right. Correct. Steven Spielberg was uh, actually spent two months in Arkansas scouting the locations, but dropped out to film Sugarland Express in Texas. And then Joseph Sargent came in and directed White Lightning. Oh, I bet he really regrets that. Yeah, missed out on another Academy Award. <laughs> Let's We're going to get kicked out This is Central Arkansas. They're never letting us back in. That's why we don't live there anymore. Yeah, they said they're too dumb. <laughs> to be fair, 1973 was before either of you were born. So that's why you got that one, the, the credit for that one. Thank you. All right. Let's go to Pine Bluff for our final question. Bayou Bartholomew starts in Pine Bluff. Could you say that one more time? Bayou Bartholomew. Incredible name. Yes. Which of these most accurately describes Bayou Bartholomew? It's the longest bayou in Arkansas. It's the longest bayou in North America. It's the longest bayou in the United States. It's the longest bayou in the world. Bayou Bartholomew. Go big or go home. It's the biggest in the world. I'm going to say that is maybe not true. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. It could be. I, I've never been to Bayou Bartholomew. I was going to ask because you're kind of an outdoors guy. Yeah. And the fishing, there's some apparently yeah. legendary fishing spots on Bayou Bartholomew for crappie and catfish. Yeah, I've been mostly East Arkansas, okay. actually. And, yeah, like Biomeda and stuff. But. Okay. Mm, yeah, I don't. So it's either it's the longest in the world, longest in the U.S., longest in Arkansas. What or was that? North America. Or North America. I actually don't know where all Bayou, how many places Bayous exist. The Bayou ecosystem? Yeah. I mean, are there Bayous in China? I have no idea. They probably just call it something else. Let's go big. I'm ready to burn. Do you want to, do you want to like maybe like tone it like biggest in the United States? Let's go world. He didn't, he just said that he doesn't know if they exist in other places. It's true. I did say that. Hmm. Which maybe would mean either he didn't fact check that far or or it's because it's the biggest in the world you know <laughs> longest 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 yeah, right yeah. longest um yeah i mean let's go world it's biggest biggest in the world longest longest in the world it is the longest bayou in the world it Incredible. starts in pine bluff and then empties out into a river in louisiana great so you won three correct two incorrect wow, wow. oh my god the confetti <laughs> yes ah! <laughs> So there you go. Um, you win Central Arkansas. Great. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, they are not going to be pleased. <laughs> Daniel Carruth, Jack Travis, thanks for being good sports. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, Kyle. This month's Short Talks from the Hill features Mervyn Jabaraj. As director of the Center for Business and Economic Research in the Sam Walton College of Business, Jabaraj leads a team of researchers who provide applied economic and business research to federal, state, and local government and to businesses in Arkansas. In the podcast, Jabaraj discusses inflation, consumer sentiment, and economic growth in northwest Arkansas. The center recently released the Northwest Arkansas Region Report, an analysis of the Northwest Arkansas economy. Jeparaj explained what goes into the making of this report. 
when we compared ourselves to the first set, uh, we were a lot better. So when it's like make this a little harder and try regional comparisons that are bigger than us. Think of Tulsa or Kansas City or Omaha, which is a little further away than those two uh, metro regions. But they're larger metro areas, have a lot more people, a lot more businesses and so on. So we wanted to compare ourselves to the larger metro areas that are near us. Again, we were outperforming them, you know, not in terms of size, but in terms of growth. You can listen to Jebaraj wherever you get your podcasts or by going to arkansasresearch.uark.edu, the home of research and economic development news at the University of Arkansas. This is 91.3 KUAF. It's end of year fundraising time at KUAF. We want to end this calendar year as strong and independent as we can. We do that with your help, your contribution to support KUAF.com. KUAF has taken you to just about every corner of the world in 2023. Now, that trip won't get you any frequent flyer miles, and (laughs) we won't be able to give you any peanuts or a complimentary beverage, but we can bring you lifelong learning and, I promise, a daily dose of new ideas. We'll keep the new ideas in journalism coming in 2024, and we'll continue to take you to stories both near and far. Just make your year-end contribution right now. It's tax-deductible. If you have any questions, they're answered at supportkuaf.com. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors to today's show included Daniel Carruth, Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Wilburn, and Mark Christ. Our membership director at KUAF is Brett Ratliff. Today's show produced in the Bruce and Anna Applegate News Studio 2. Once again, the phone number if you are an Alzheimer caregiver and you're looking for advice or have a question, one 800 272 3900 And we will have a new show for you tomorrow. That's right. Uh, well, we'll have new shows the rest of this week. That's what we do. <laughs> we do that. We do that most weeks, Kyle. Um, um, it was a. It was a. I loved hearing the back and forth between Jack and Daniel mm-hmm. in the quiz. Uh, I also am glad that no one really seemed to know what they were doing. Well, that's the idea, right? I don't want to make these quizzes to where it's a group feel. effort. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we'll have more quizzes in the future as well. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. It's time for the annual KUAF and Friends Holiday Giveaway. This is your chance to win a gift from one of many generous KUAF underwriters. Participants include Trendsetter Barbershop and Salon, The Commons Bar and Cafe at Theater Squared, Theropods Float Spa, and more. Winners announced on Friday, December 8th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Details and registration at KUAF.com. Gotta Hold Brewing in Eureka Springs is a supporter of KUAF. With 10-plus beers on tap on a one-acre beer forest, local art and live music, a food truck, and coffee bar on site, it's an escape from the city. 409 West Van Buren in Eureka Springs, Arkansas.